Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episodes cover Season 3, Part 12, Back in Town. What's taking place in Twin Peaks, in the main town, in this episode? Just a quick note for people who listened to yesterday's episode early, I accidentally had the wrong intro and outro attached to it, so it sounded like it was going to introduce the scenes that would take place in Twin Peaks when obviously it was the scenes that took place out of Twin Peaks, and today is the one about the Twin Peaks scene. So sorry for that confusion there. I fixed that, also added a little bit to the end, talking about a storyline that disappeared in New Mexico, but uh, otherwise was the same podcast if you listen to it early as late, but I I did have to tweak that. So yeah, today we're going to deal with the Twin Peaks scene, so let's move forward with that. Moving on to the story sections. In Twin Peaks this week, in the Jacoby storyline... Uh, we see another of his shows, yet it's really kind of the first show we saw. If you look at the outfit Nadine's wearing, it's the same as in uh, Part 5. Uh, some of the lines are the same that he delivers. Unlike the, the glimpse we get in a previous episode, I can't remember if it's Part 9 or 10, in that one you can see different costumes, you can see different dialogue. It feels like that's a different night, a different episode. For some reason here, Lynch is returning to that earlier episode. I'm not quite sure what to make of that in terms of the timeline. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I think structurally, it gives us a transition directly into the biggest shock of this episode, which is seeing Audrey for the first time. In the Ben and Beverly storyline, she cries as he tells her a story about a bicycle he had as a child that his father gave him and how much he loved it. And just this warm story of a father and a son that obviously contrasts with what his grandson has just done. Richard Boehmer has said that he was not satisfied with this performance. Um, I, I think it's pretty good stuff, you know. I think Lynch obviously did as well, but Boehmer's always been a bit self-critical about this. He talks about how in season one he didn't understand Ben until uh, he was given a big cigar, and then it was like, ah, he finally got the character. And that's in the last episode of season one. So if you enjoy his performance in season one, you may have a little bit of a different opinion than than Boehmer himself, who seems to think he didn't catch on until that late in the game. As far as the other characters go, we see Jerry running through a field and uh, running out of the woods. We don't get much of anything with the Cooper investigation. Hawk and Frank both mention it offhand, but they're kind of where they are for other purposes. Hawk is checking in on Sarah, and Frank is uh, telling Ben the news about Richard, but he does get the key from him, so that ties into the Cooper investigation somewhat. We return to Sarah Palmer's storyline for the first time in a long time. She goes to the store to buy liquor and cigarettes, kind of loading up on what we saw her consuming at her house in a previous episode. And at the counter, which she's purchasing her everything, she sees a beef jerky and a turkey jerky, and she gets really agitated. And she starts saying these strange things to the cashier who tries to explain that it's a new product from the same vendor. But she's on something else here. She's she's worried about something else. And she asks all these obscure questions, starts talking to herself, and leaves. And the, the young cashiers are just astonished. The cashier and the bag are looking at each other like, what just happened? Later on, Hawk visits the Palmer house to check in on her and just sort of gently asks how she's doing. She's gritting her teeth and kind of saying everything's okay, but kind of not in the same way and he hears a noise in the kitchen and uh, doesn't go in to check on it but she just says it's just something in the kitchen and leaves it at that and she says to him it's a goddamn bad story isn't it hawk just a memorable line and a memorable scene i think these these scenes particularly made an impression in this episode because we hadn't seen sarah much at all during the series so far and yet These underline this idea that she's somehow very important to the story. And, of course, we'll find out more how uh, eventually. I want to cover the roadhouse 
gang. I want to save Audrey for last in this Twin Peaks section. In the Roadhouse, we see the Chromatics performing the song Saturday and Instrumental, and we see these characters Abby and Natalie talking about characters named Angela and Clark, and then a guy named Trick runs in, he just got run off the road, nearly died, and he's all sort of panicky. And All these characters interact, and we have no idea what any of it means. We don't know who they are. We have no idea who these people are they're talking about. It's just a dizzying array of names, but it feels very reminiscent of that Audrey scene earlier. Frank's family life does come up in the conversation with Ben because uh, Ben asks about Harry, and, you know, Frank kind of alludes to his illness, and then uh, that inspires Ben to give him the key and all of that. So... In a brief moment there, even though we're not dealing with Frank's family life with his wife, we are dealing with his broader family life with his brother, as we were a few episodes ago, where he tried to call Harry and give him the message. So this is back after, I guess, a four-episode absence, because the last time we dealt with it was in part seven. In Fat Trout Life, we get a little glimpse of daily life in the trailer park, where Carl, uh, Carl Rod runs into a tenant named Chris Cole, who's off to give his blood so he can make some money. And he gives him 50 bucks, says don't pay the rent this month. He helps out a lot around the trailer park, and he doesn't like the idea of people giving their blood away. So this is just a vision of Carl as this sort of beneficent figure. Um, somebody who is, is, he's conceivable, is continuous with the character we met in Firewalk with me, but still very different presence in a way. Uh, we're getting a much fuller, richer picture of him as a human being. And whether that's the character changing with age or just us getting a closer look at someone now that we have more time with them i i'm not sure but it's a welcome touch for the hit and run storyline we see miriam in the hospital we have truman telling ben that his grandson richard killed the little boy in the hit and run and then tried to kill a witness ben is i don't know if devastated is the right word he's obviously not happy with this news but he doesn't seem shocked either he knew something like this was probably coming with the son he talks about how he never had a father and he volunteers uh, he's prodded by frank but he immediately is, agrees oh yes he'll pay the medical bills for miriam who doesn't have insurance that idea of you know not having insurance the sort of social concern embedded in the episode right alongside that that Chris Cole scene where he's off to try and make money any way he can. This feels like a frosty and touch to me. It feels like his political awareness and concern that he usually exhibits in his work. Uh, this whole episode, I think, has a kind of a Frostian feel. Those parts of it, I should say, some parts feel very Lynchian. This scene in particular, everything with Ben and Beverly and the the stuff we're about to discuss that are more tangential storylines attached to that. It very much has that touch of Mark Frost and his concerns with mortality, the passage of time, this sort of melancholy longing for the past, but with an understanding that this is the reality, this tough world, and we have to make our make our go of it within it. The Richard's parentage storyline, we get a little bit more here. We certainly get a guarantee that Ben was his grandfather, which we already knew because Sylvia was the grandmother. There would have had to be some strange stretch for Ben not to be related as well. Audrey is never mentioned, and later when we do see Audrey in her own little storyline, she doesn't mention Richard. So it's hard for us to uh, know why this is at this point. We might get a little sense of that later. We finally see Audrey in a sharp cut from Dr. Jacoby standing there with drool dripping down his, uh, or spittle I should say, dripping down his beard. He's got all 
worked up and he's talking about how evil politicians are and he says they're going to the ninth circle of hell and then bam there's audrey and a lot of people took that as some kind of sign right away like okay what's he saying ninth circle of hell is she in some kind of limbo here is she in a coma Uh, what's going on right away people knew something wasn't right so what we see is audrey and a man who appears to be her husband well he says he's her husband charlie he's sitting behind a desk she's standing up by a fireplace with her coat begging him to go so they can go to the roadhouse and look for somebody named Billy, who she admits right out that she's fucking. She says, you know, this is who she's in love with. And meanwhile, she's asking Charlie to go help him find him. It's such a strange situation from the get-go, but it's even stranger because of how little context we're given. Uh, We're just thrust right into the situation. And there's almost a sense that the characters are going through these motions, but... uh, we wonder if you were to ask them, would they would they even be able to answer any questions about it? They're so intent on getting these these little things they want, you know, in, in her case, getting out there and get looking for Billy, that there's almost a sense in which they don't know where this process began. I don't know if that makes sense, but I'm thinking of it in terms of like a dream where you're just in the middle of the dream. You don't stop to ask why you're doing any of these things that you're doing. So people thought it could be a dream. They thought it could be a coma vision. They thought it could be a psychological game where he was a psychiatrist trying to treat her in an institution. They thought perhaps this was like a performance at a local theater that we just weren't seeing the audience. Because if you look at the shots, I think none of them do a reverse angle away. We only see one wall. And uh, it's worth noting all of the props in this in this uh, room are all older, I would say at least 50 or 60 years. I don't think there's anything post-50s in there. Old knickknacks and things like that. Audrey does recall herself from season one and two, the hairstyle, the clothing to a certain extent, but she also has very much an Elizabeth Taylor look in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and the bickering between them has that feel of that play, and also a lot of other plays. There's a definite flavor of absurdism here, like Pirandello or Beckett, that type of theater. That's the sense of what's going on here. And so they talk about Chuck, they talk about Tina, they talk about Paul, they especially talk about Billy. Let's see if I can kind of get, I've got a little bit of it written down here. There's some sort of contract between Charlie and Audrey, implied that it's a marital contract. She wants out of it. Paul can help her get out of it. We learn that Chuck stole Billy's truck, uh, earlier in the week and then uh, Charlie calls Tina to find out what happened to the truck and then uh, he gets us other news and seems shocked and then he hangs up the phone he won't tell Audrey what he said or what she said so the characters almost seem as confused as we are and yet they also have some kind of understanding that we don't have and I guess that's all I can say about that this time We'll, we'll have more to talk about Audrey in the upcoming episodes if you can't tell by my chuckling through it I just get a huge kick out of this dynamic in this scene it's that kind of perversity that lynch does sometimes that i find kind of amusing and fascinating a returning storyline from the original cycle uh, including firewalk with me in this case is chet desmond's disappearance which we last heard of in firewalk with me or i suppose in the missing pieces actually where uh, cooper follows up with sam stanley and now we hear about it again so nice to hear from you chet Sort of. Thanks for listening. You can support this work on patreon.com slash lost in the movies and also by rating, reviewing, and subscribing to this public podcast. So uh, tomorrow's episode is going to look at the mythology in this episode. Uh, what happens both, you know, in any sort of mythological related locations, which I don't think there's any specifically in this episode that we like visit, but also what's happening in the quote-unquote real world that is uh, sort of part of that lodge lore. So we'll have some stuff to talk about there. 